when Teresa and I first moved to Lumberton, Texas, in deep east Texas, in the Piney Woods, uh, we had a house that was out on the edge of town. It was only uh, maybe a half or three-quarters of a mile from the church, so that made it convenient. But what I loved about it the most was it was out on the edge of town, and so what we had out there was a lot of quietness and peace. The problem was it was only a couple of hundred mile, a couple of hundred feet yards, one of those pieces of measurement, a couple of hundred yards from a state highway, a state highway that happened to be one of the main north-south feeders between East Texas up high and where we were in southeast Texas. One of the things I loved about that was it was out in the trees and it was really quiet and peaceful. And so a lot of mornings I would go sit out way before the sun came up and just kind of listen to the forest as it woke up. One morning I happened to be out there while that was happening and uh, it was a great time for me. I was just kind of me and the Lord out there. It was before the mosquitoes got uh, really bad that year and I was just enjoying being out there. I don't know how long, maybe 45 minutes or so I'd been sitting out there. And, and then I heard this piercing sound as it split the night. You see, that north-south highway that I was talking about was cut like a channel through those trees. And so sound from the highway funneled down that channel. And on this particular morning in that peaceful time, in the far distance, I heard the piercing sound of a siren. And I listened to it for probably five minutes or so before it got to where we were and went on past us. But as I sat there in the midst of my own peaceful time with the Lord, it dawned on me that that siren was happening because somebody was having a really bad start to their day. In fact, we don't know what was going on in the back of that ambulance, but we know that it was an ambulance. And it dawned on me at that particular point this truth about how we as Christians live in our society. We may well be in a nice, peaceful, holistic kind of spiritual vitality that colors every aspect of our day. And because of that, we go into every day and everything seems to be fine. Whereas right next door to us, maybe in our cubicle next door, an office next door, a house next door, a car next door, right next door to us is somebody who may well be in critical condition, spiritually and otherwise. Welcome back to The Chase. We started this series last week. I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In this series that will take us now for uh, a good portion of the spring, maybe all of the spring, what I want to do is to help underscore some of the reality of life in our day. We call it The Chase because the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes seems to give us this insight into his own chase as he works his way through some of the things that life can offer and he looks for meaning and he looks for fulfillment in his life. He, he just kind of steps back and, and lets the camera shine down on who he is in his own chase. And in the process of that, he gives us great instruction about how we live or at least should live our lives. And maybe a better way to say that is how we should not live our lives. The premise of the whole series is that we're all chasing 
something. We're looking for something in life that will somehow help life make sense for us, somehow get us to that point of what we like to call the good life. So welcome to the chase. Let me just kind of uh, pause for a few moments before we come to the text per se. Let me highlight this truth for us. As we come to what he is going to be talking about here in the first part of chapter 2, which is his chase through pleasure, let's stop for a few moments and let's just kind of train the spotlight and the searchlight on our American society for a little bit because it is my premise today that Americans have grown and have developed a very sophisticated chase for pleasure. Let me just give you a couple of examples of that. First of all, let's consider the entertainment industry. And I don't use that term lightly. It is an industry. After all, the reason that we have film production companies that spend millions of dollars on a given film is because they know that there will be millions of people who will go and watch that film at the small price of $15 a ticket or whatever it is these days. And theaters get packed out for the blockbuster movies. Those who do less are called art for some reason, but the, and maybe they are that, but the reality is that those big mega blockbusters that we have bring in millions and maybe even billions of dollars. Let's not let this be lost on us. They bring in that kind of money because there's a market out there because we as American citizens love our entertainment. It is an industry if that doesn't get it for you, let me take you into one of those football stadiums. And what, by the way, what's wrong with Elvin hacking on the Cowboys today? Man, somebody said that was a pipe dream that you had, but that's another story. We love our professional sports, don't we? Okay, you can say nothing, but I know you do because I've talked to some of you. Just take, for instance, those two playoff games that occurred in the NFL yesterday, and I kind of tuned in for pieces of both of them. And one of the reasons that that I can tune in on TV is because it's an industry and because there's money to be had and advertisers pay money, and we pay these athletes millions of dollars so that they can go out and play a game. It's business for them. I get that. But for us, it's, it's entertainment. And as I tuned in to both of those playoff games yesterday, I noticed that the stadiums were packed with people. If those tickets that those people paid for only cost a dollar each, by the way, they cost a lot more than that. But if it's only a dollar each, look at how much money came into the coffers for a sporting event. Americans have grown very sophisticated in our chase for pleasure And there are large price tags and payoffs attached. If I haven't hit into your particular chosen field of entertainment and pleasure, let me drop this on you. There is a home and a personal element to this chase for pleasure. That's why Netflix is such a huge thing in our day. And for a small price of $10 a month or so, You can stream entertainment into your very living room. It's the same premise as Microsoft with its Xbox One 
and Sony with its PlayStation 4, where we pay out money in our own search for pleasure. Americans are very sophisticated in our chase for pleasure. I think I want to say to you first, or in this particular moment, that I'm not saying that all of that is wrong. If you think that what I'm doing is up here hacking on this so that we can, you know, adopt a mentality that says we should just be miserable in life and accept it, that's not at all what I'm saying. I just want us to pause long enough to wear the reality of this, that as we come to look at the preacher, as some translation will refer to the writer of Ecclesiastes, or maybe it's Solomon, or maybe it's Koheleth, as the Hebrew term and the Hebrew title says. Uh, I'll call him the preacher through the course of this sermon at least. As we come to see what he has to say about his search through pleasure to find meaning in life, let's be sure that we own what's ours to own from the outset. We as Americans are very sophisticated in our chase through pleasure. So I'm not saying that it's all wrong. I like a big screen TV just like the next guy. But I am saying that if we are looking to pleasure and entertainment for fulfillment and for meaning and for some kind of support that says my life is worthwhile, then we're going to be in trouble because pleasure does not feed the soul. And that's what we need. It seems to be lost that truth seems to be lost on American society. And so we double down and we double down again and we keep pouring money into this search for meaning. Another way for me to say all of that is that as we come to this text today, we may well believe that the preacher has a credibility problem. It may be that as we listen to what he's going to say in the first 11 verses of chapter, wait a minute, I don't think you know what you're talking about. Because that's not our experience. As a matter of fact, one of the dangers of me even preaching this sermon as much as I have already is to, to, to offend some of our sensibilities as American citizens. Things that seems to stick with us. Here's what it says at the beginning. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among, and among these are life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. Into the very fabric of our national identity, we stand on this deal that says we can chase the pursuit of happiness. Where are you going to find that? Where will you dig down at a point in your life and say, okay, this is where I will chase happiness today? Again, this is so deep in our national DNA that I think it bears enough that I've spent seven or eight minutes here already just trying to make us own what is ours to own. It goes way back into our life in a Time Magazine article, June 21st, 2000, quoted something that came from uh, James Truslow Adams. This was way back in 1938, 39, that general time frame. And he was working on a book back then. By the way, that'll take you back to the time of the stock market crash and the Great Depression that followed that. And yet, even in the midst of that, there was this push, this underlying belief that Americans would rebound because, after all, we know how to get to the good life. 
He finished that book on the day that uh, Herbert Hoover, as president, pushed the button that flipped on the lights of the newly built Empire State Building, a sign of American productivity and resolve. And in this book that Adams wrote, he makes this statement. This dream, the American dream that is, is for a better, richer, and happier life for all of our citizens of every rank. And it is the greatest contribution yet made to the thought and welfare of the world. We love the chase in America today. So when the preacher comes at us like he does in chapter 2, collectively we dig our heels in and we say, hold on, not so fast. There's a credibility problem that seems to lurk just out there as we come to this passage. Let's come to the passage. Let's read together in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and let's just begin in verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity, emptiness, meaninglessness, a vapor. I'm going to continue reading in just a moment, but let's stop and make sure that we understand what's happened here. In verse 1, the preacher gives us his conclusion of this lifelong quest, as it turns out for him, of this lifelong chase that looks for meaning in the place of pleasure. He comes in at the very outset of chapter 2. He says, it's just nothing. It ends up as a fruitless search. The word pleasure that he uses there has a wide range of meaning. It goes anywhere from just amusement all the way over to that point of great joy and happiness. So he says, I went on this search. I was, I was looking for meaning, and I looked into the field of pleasure and happiness, and I found that it's a vapor. There's nothing there. Picking up in the latter part of verse 2, of, excuse me, verse 1. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. In other words, crazy. And of pleasure, what use is it? Let's drop down to verse 11 because this is also part of his conclusion. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Once again, as we pointed out last week, this could be a very depressing study. But let's own that. Because our world, and especially our American society, that is given over to entertainment and to looking for happiness is full of depressed people. And the reality is, those of us who have spent a lifetime chasing pleasure would probably jump right in with this guy and say, it's fleeting, it's there for a while, and happiness comes and goes. It's a vapor. He calls it futile Verses 1 and 11. He calls it madness and chasing the wind. And at this point in American society, if we were really honest with our preacher in all of this, we would have to say to him, because of our DNA and because of how we invest our lives into this search, we would have to say, okay, if you say that it's meaningless, then you're going to have to prove it to me because I have a life full of stuff that helps me try to find pleasure. Prove it, preacher. 
So we come back to verse 1. We come back to verse 3. Well, we haven't read verse 3, so let's go ahead. Here's what I want you to see from this. What we say in proving it, uh, we say to the preacher, prove it. You, you make these claims that it's empty, but that's not our experience necessarily. So prove that what you say is true. And it's interesting that we pause long enough to note verse 1, uh, excuse me, verse uh, the last part of verse 1, verse 3, and verse 9, we find that the preacher in fact says, I needed to prove it to myself. This is not some haphazard party animal abandonment into pleasure. It's going to sound like it when we get into that. This is not some guy who just says, okay, I'm just going to pull out all the stops, total hedonism. I'm going to just let it roll and let's see where it takes me. That's not him at all. We find verse 3. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Now, here's the part I want you to hear. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the days of their life. Here's a guy. Verse 9 adds to that. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Here is a detailed, focused-in research project for him. This is not some just put up a sail and let life take you wherever it goes. But let's stop there for a moment, and let's own what we need to own. You do realize, right, that many people in our world today have just put up a sail on their lives and let the winds of life take them wherever they take them. We all know people like that. We have terms for them. The Eagles wrote a song a number of years ago that was entitled Desperado, and that's kind of where a lot of people are in life. We just, just kind of wander around and I'm going to test a little bit over here in this arena, and then I'll go test a little bit over there in that field. And, and, and you know, the, the world is blowing this way, so I'll just kind of let it take me there. We have fads that come and go. <laughs> My dad said to me one time, I walked in, had a new shirt on, and my dad said, I heard those are going to come back in style soon. Ever notice how fads repeat themselves over a period of time? I heard, not that I'm following fashion stuff, but I did hear from the fashion front recently that the 80s clothes are coming back. So some of you are good. You can go back to your closet. And... <laughs> I'm just kidding about that. Don't. Please don't. <laughs> it's interesting how our world goes in these cycles, and some people just kind of let the wind of life blow them from one thing to the next, hoping, hoping, hoping that they might find happiness and pleasure in there somewhere. This preacher is calculated, he is intentional, and he is moving directly into a research project that says, I'm looking for meaning and fulfillment in life in the field of pleasure. And so after verse 3, he now begins to delineate for us where his search took him. And it's quite a list. One of the reasons that many people believe that Solomon is the one who wrote this is because of lists like this one that are in here that few people other than someone like Solomon could claim to have accomplished. So let's just kind of read through this, and I'll come back and make a few comments as we go. Verse 4, now his search, now his chase, and where it took him. I made great works. 
I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. As, as I read through these few, first few verses, I want you to notice how he puts pairs together. And poetically and in wisdom literature of the Old Testament, that's a way of saying I, I, I've done this and I've done this, and that involves everything in between. So he says, I made great works. It was about building. It was about, for many of us, we might say a, a business project. I made great works. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. In order for those fruit trees to flourish in a desert environment, we go to verse 6. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. In other words, he pulls this together and he says, look, look at all that I have done. I poured myself into the chase of pleasure. I did all of these things. And while we might be tempted to say, well, he's just a philanthropist. He's just doing this so that he can help other people. After all, who appreciates a tree more than people who don't have one? Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Verses 4 through 7, he lays out this whole thing and says, look what I've done. He starts this chase, or at least his depiction of the chase for us in verse 3, though. Let me kind of just drill down on that for just a little bit because I think it has something to say to us, and it's an interesting verse, that last part Excuse me, the first part, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And the language here is difficult for us because the language here, the Hebrew translation is choppy. And literally, it's something like this. I, I drew myself with wine. Drew, the picture is of being bound up with wine. Actually, the better picture from our vantage point is like a dog on a leash I tried wine out. I stop here because the picture that he gives to us is one of inebriation, but really, really it pushes maybe even to the point of addiction. And I stop there for just a moment because I want us, um, you know, as Americans, we love our chemical escapism, don't we? You see, one of the byproducts of being on a chase without finding the fulfillment that we're looking for is sooner or later we have to just kind of numb the thing. Americans love our chemical escapism. And so, let me just say, coming from a family of alcoholics and substance abusers, let me just tell you that that's a dead-end street. But when we pull in verse 4 through 7, uh, I can say this, coming from a family of workaholics, that's a dead-end street also. Throughout this, what we find is something that we lose in our English translation. As I said earlier, it, we might be tempted to think that this is the voice of a philanthropist. As he says, I built all of these things for the good of everybody. But that's not the case because throughout this little section, verses 4 through 7, in every verb of consequence, he attaches this little thing that says, for myself. I built parks for myself. I built these, these uh, buildings for myself. 
The picture is one who is consumed with self as he works his way through life. And here's a principle for us. Sin isolates and then it kills. And in this case, sin is going in for the kill with this wise man, this one who has more than ever and has accomplished more than ever. And he comes to the end of it and he said, it's just nothing. Are you a builder today? Are you in the process of building a life that is marked by building businesses or building stuff or building people? Be careful that your motivations are pointed in the right direction because sin, by its very nature, sets in and it becomes about us rather than about others. I should hurry to get through here because this is a terrible place to have to stop. Verse 8 takes us a little deeper. This is the part that really causes some issues for us as Americans, I think. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. It's the pursuit of wealth now. I got singers, both men and women. Let me stop there for just a second and highlight this. That doesn't make him a choir director. It's a picture of his opulence and his wealth. Because male and female singers together would have pointed to a personal choir to sing at banquets, to sing at parties. It's, it's his own entertainment again, but now he's pulling in some of, the, uh, some of the finery of life. We don't have personal choirs unless your name's Elvin, but for the most part, we don't have that. But every single one of us, I suppose has Pandora and Amazon Music and stacks of either vinyl LPs or CDs or a phone full of digital music that provides the soundtracks for our everyday life. We love our entertainment, after all. And at this point, his search takes a sinister turn. Because one of the things that's true about sin is, uh, is that it, in our own personal chase, sin moves us to use and abuse people. He says he had slaves. I've already read that part. But there's, there's, a, there's a depth there because he says, I bought slaves. And then he says, I had some that were born under my roof. In other words, this is a long process. And he has generations of slaves under his ownership. It brings us to the last part of verse 8. And many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. If I were to try to interpret that Hebrew word for you literally, you would probably kick me out of church. This is about as vulgar a term as we find in Scripture. As he talks about these concubines, we might use the term prostitutes, but that doesn't get to the depth of what he says. It's a vulgar term. And it points to that other arena of life that he looked for pleasure. And in the midst of all of this, what I want us to see is that sin in our own search for pleasure for ourselves moves us to use and abuse people. No wonder at the end of it all, he said, it's just nothing. It's just meaningless. 
verses 9 and 10 to close it all out. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And verse 11 then again says, it's just chasing after the wind. In a sense, in essence, he says, look at me, I'm awesome, but I'm miserable. So what do you do with all of this? Hear me again say, pleasure in and of itself is not bad. Don't think that I'm saying that. As a matter of fact, I would say to you that pleasure and enjoyment of life is a gift from God. After all, isn't it true in Genesis 1 that as God created each day at the end of the day, he said, it, it, the Scripture says he looked at what he created and it was good. That's a sign of pleasure. It's a, it's a word of pleasure. It's a word of completeness. I, I see what I've done. It's a good thing. God gives us pleasure. So I'm not saying that we should not look for pleasure in life. I'm just saying we need to be careful where we look. Because in our national identity and in our sin nature that drives even that for us, we are driven to self. We each one have the right for the pursuit of happiness. Just be careful where you look. Will Mancini, who wrote a book that I'm currently reading about church vision and that kind of thing, he says this, an idol is anything that we add to Jesus in order to make life work. Be careful in your life. And maybe I should just put it in the form of a question. Is it possible that in your life today, you are making pleasure the idol that supplants Jesus in your life? What are you chasing? Let me just throw Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the latter part of it. Translated very, liter very literally, Paul says to us, don't conform yourself to the world. You have a choice to make. Where are you looking for happiness and fulfillment? Where's God in your life today? And if you're here today and you're tired of the chase, find Jesus. Accept his offer of life to you. Let's pray together. And as we pray, let me just ask you, Where's Jesus in your life today? Where's your chase taking you? And what do you do about it? Jesus, we pray that you would touch hearts now, change them so that you might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.